Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, your award-winning Texas history podcast. I am very grateful that you tuned in today for some Texas history in this special bonus episode. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and I'm doing this bonus episode because one of Texas's newest historic sites is going to open in a couple of weeks. I'm recording and releasing this episode on November 1st, 2021. Um... Four days away, by the way, from the sixth anniversary of Wise About Texas. And uh, one of the most important and interesting historic sites in Texas has a great new addition coming in a couple of weeks. San Felipe was the, or San Felipe de Austin as it was known in the 1830s, was the capital of Stephen F. Austin's colony in Mexican Texas. Austin had his land office there at San Felipe, so all of the old 300 um, land grants and all the business that was conducted was conducted in San Felipe. The site was preserved by the state um, in, an, in a small way. A very small piece of the site was preserved in the early 20th century. But in 2018, the Texas Historic Commission, after having acquired some additional land, opened a wonderful visitor center Uh, there at San Felipe. And if you listen to this podcast in early 2020, I went around to all, or many, excuse me, not all, many of the historic sites associated with the Texas Revolution, and San Felipe was one of those sites. And I interviewed Brian McCauley, the site director, um, who works with the Texas Historic Commission, and we talked about the importance of San Felipe in the community. But they've made an addition to the site that's going to open on November 13th, 2021, and it's called Via de Austin. And what the Historic Commission has done is reconstructed some of the buildings that existed in the original San Felipe. Uh, They located them on the site of the original San Felipe, of course, next to the Visitor Center. Uh, The block that is being recreated is not sitting where uh, it originally sat. It's sitting um, a few yards away, but it will be an accurate recreation of the town. So you will have the opportunity to step back in time just about any time you want and go back and see what life was like and really experience it, um, what life was like before the Texas Revolution in the capital of Austin Colony. So for this special bonus episode, I've interviewed Michael Rugley Moore, who is the historian who did all the work on Via de Austin and has done a tremendous job uncovering the stories of the people and events of San Felipe de Austin and has supervised the construction of Via de Austin. So without further delay, please enjoy this interview with Michael Rugley Moore. Michael, thank you for being on Wise About Texas today. Well, thank you for having me. Well, today it's very exciting to talk to you about San Felipe. You've lived with this project for a long time. Uh, I did an introduction prior to this conversation about uh, the importance of San Felipe. But um, tell me, tell our listeners first a little bit about your background and how you came to this project. Well, I seem to have been born for this project. When I was a teenager, young teenager, 
I got involved with Texas Revolution reenacting at the age of 14. And I'm in a film out here uh, about the runaway spray. And over many decades, I've had an interest in Austin's colony and the story of Stephen F. Austin and his settlement of Texas and always thought this site was neglected uh, and, and over the decades. And about 20 years ago, I really set out to see if we could make something different and not have it be a neglected place and a forgotten place about Texas history. And over the, since really the last two decades, it's been a remarkable transformation to bring the site to people's consciousness, to understand more of its history that had been lost, and then to find ways to interpret it for visitors so that they not only begin to see the stories, but really get to immerse themselves in the places they were connected to Stephen F. Austin and his, his capital city here, San Felipe de Austin. Well, it's, it's funny you put it that way, because I remember first discovering San Felipe, as I like to put it, when I was duck hunting, and it was more than 20 years ago. And that, you know, it was a little state park, and like you say, neglected and almost forgotten. But it was really the heart of early Texas. Um, as the capital of Austin's colony. And give us a sense of, of why it is so important. I mean, I could describe it, but I'd rather hear you describe it. Why is it such an important place? Well, it's an important place because a number of important events occurred here. And as you look at the historiography or how historians have looked at the town, um, uh, in the 19th century, they talked about Stephen F. Austin and his town. They talked about the provisional government of Texas at the beginning of the Texas Revolution and the town in which it was um, capital, the seat of that government. And as the 20th century came about, there really was a focus on Austin and they lost the focus on Austin's town. There's a focus on the Texas Revolution and the events that occurred in the revolution, but a loss of focus on the town that was directing those events. And so in, in part, during the 20th century, historians have really um, shied away from the story of San Felipe because it's not well documented, uh, because there wasn't the papers, the evidence the, in the archives to tell the story. And only since the Texas Historical Commission has taken on the site uh, 14 years ago has, has it been possible to, to learn more about the site and restore it to its original prominence. And it's prominent because several things, not only, not only did Austin live here, but more critically, the land office that he operated was here. And so the, the settlement of the land grants of the old 300 and the other Austin's colonists, um, ranging over all or parts of some, what, 32 Texas counties or whatever it is, um, this area of Southeast Texas, everyone had to come here to get their land grant. And so the process of settlement, of, of forming the, the land and with people from the United States settling in Mexican-owned Texas um, is the first and most important event that occurs surrounding San Felipe. But then as the town develops, it becomes the, the political, the social, the economic, the trade center, the center of government and courts uh, in the 1830s. And then by the time the colonists in Texas and decided they weren't satisfied with Mexican government, they met here in several conventions to express their grievances. A very American thing to do to hold a convention to say, <laughs> hey, we're not happy. 
and, and to redress the government. And they did that here in 1832, in 1833, and again in 1835, a convention that's called the Consultation. And in each of these, they were trying to say, we want to be good citizens of Mexico, but Texas should be a separate state. And that process of trying to push for statehood was really the political drive of the political leaderships uh, here in San Felipe and the surrounding area. And as 1835's convention uh, met here, the Texas Revolution was starting. So the Battle of Gonzales and the capture of Presidio La Bahia at Golian and the campaign to San Antonio. And the events of that war were being led from that same courthouse, the same council hall here in San Felipe where the conventions met. And so it really was the revolutionary capital of Texas. Um, for, for most of the war, the, the government that directed Travis to go to the Alamo, for example, or the military campaign or the different negotiations for supplies from the United States, all were coming out of the building, the Capitol building here at San Felipe de Austin. So as the, the center of settlement, as a, a leading town in Mexican-owned Texas, the Mexican era of Texas history, and as the revolutionary capital of Texas, we think it's a really significant place. And um, very sad that, that its story got lost in part because of its significance. Um, so everybody, all your, your listeners, of course, know about the Alamo and uh, our local lawyer, William Barrett Travis was sent to command <laughs> the Alamo. And upon his, his the defeat and, and Santa Ana's capture of the Alamo, Santa Ana says that he puts his armies in motion, three different columns coming through Texas designed to converge on San Felipe de Austin. That was his next military objective because it was where the government was. And um, as he arrived, Sam Houston had been retreating and came to the town of San Felipe in, in late March of 1836. And he decides to retreat further to the north up the Brazos River. And two of the companies of, of his army refused to follow him. And rather than having a mutiny on the spot, he, he kind of decides, well, why don't y'all stay here and defend this crossing of the Brazos River and the other, which is the company under Mosley Baker. And then the other company under Wally Martin was sent to his home, which is at, at uh, Fort Bend to defend that crossing. And they were, they say they were ordered, that Baker was ordered to burn the town upon the arrival of the Mexican army or before the arrival of the Mexican army. And the strategic importance of that was that the, the river was in flood stage, the Brazos River, and all these wonderful log cabins would have made great rafts to cross the Mexican army across. And because, um, um, and so to, to deny them the supplies of the town, the use of the rafts, on the night of March 29, 1836, the entire town was burned by its own militia company. And, um, and subsequently there was a small skirmish fought over the crossing over the next several days. But, um, the importance of the burning of the town from a historical standpoint is that a lot of the town's records were lost. Evidence of people's stores and, and correspondence and all of the, the archival minutiae that historians use to tell a story, a lot of it got burned. And so the town's story, not only did artifacts not survive, but neither did a lot of the, the archival resources. And so because historians don't tend to write about things that there's not good records on, it just never became a topic of, of um, a lot of people research. Um, and so it, it falls from the, the focus and the story becomes about Travis and about Austin and about 
um, the revolution and everybody seemed to forget all these things were connected to San Felipe. Well, and, it, and what's so fascinating about everything that you just said is what you, to some, to paraphrase you, everything came through San Felipe, every person, every amount of business, uh, even military uh, aspects came through San Felipe at some point prior to the revolution and during the revolution. So tell us maybe um, you mentioned William Barrett Travis. Now tell us a little bit about William Barrett Travis, what he did in San Felipe and what you found since. And then I want to talk about some of the other people that were here. So Travis was an attorney. Um, he, he moved to Texas in 1831 and, and attorneys are always the troublemakers in any <laughs> one of these things right <laughs> well, and he, he, he initially found the troublemaker spot of anawak which i'm sure you've talked <laughs> right. about in your, in your podcast a number of times and um so one of the the steps towards conflict one of the road to revolution uh was a dis disturbance in anawak in the summer of 1832 and travis figures prominently in that um and afterwards, he moves, to, moves his law office to San Felipe de Austin in September of 1832 and posts an ad in the newspaper as a new lawyer in town. And he, um, he left a journal, a diary that's really quite fascinating in many ways. One reason, it's one of the few records of social life in the town, of specific things he did and legal cases and, and a lot of um, um, elements of social life. He he settled here and w had a number of court cases, one of which I had researched and, and wrote about, and we'll talk about here in a second. But he, his law practice um, was centered in San Felipe, but he also would go to Brazoria and other towns to, to practice law. He also was appointed the secretary of the town council of, of the Ayuntamiento. And in that role, he helped really be a, he was a, an organizer of municipal government and when the Mexican Congress of Coahuila in Texas, the state Congress, approved a second, a third district for Texas, uh, San Felipe was the head of that Brazos district. And Travis was tasked with organizing a primary court, in essence, a district court here, that David G. Burnett was the first judge. And so Travis did a lot of things for the municipal government of municipal records. Um, he, he translated documents in Spanish and wrote in his characteristic handwriting a lot of documents that are unsigned that are surprising when you realize, oh, Travis wrote that in his role as the clerk of the court or the clerk to the town council. So he, he had a number of, of roles here and that seemed to contradict a bit this idea that he was a, a firebrand outsider American who hadn't invested in Texas Mexican Texas. And so when he goes to the Alamo, he's all about change and not continuity. He's all about uh, revolting against Mexico. But I think here in San Felipe, you see a different side of him where he is the agent of municipal government in Mexican Texas. He is, he is writing in Spanish on behalf of the government um, resolutions and appeals for Austin's release from prison, for example, or various things where he's, he's the, the, um, the pen, not the sword in mm -hmm. trying to, to develop the Texas as they saw it. So he's a fascinating character here as well as 
for the Alamo. Um, one case he um, uh, took part in was a case for freedom for a, a woman named Celia. So Celia is one of our local heroes, heroines, I guess you'd say. She was brought to San Felipe as, as an enslaved person in 1830 and um, by two merchant partners from Mississippi. And they, they bought a hotel and tavern and they had a bake oven that she helped with. So she was learning the, the, the skills of the baker. And Celia, uh, one of her two owners, wished to free her, to manumit her. And the other owner did not. And so they had conflict between these two business partners. And in the spring of 1832, the one who was opposed to her freedom was killed in an accident in her pit saw um, here in town. And the other partner went ahead with her freedom. But the first partner's estate wouldn't let her value go, to kind of summarize the legal case. So William Barrett Travis writes in his journal that in December of 1832, that he was retained by Celia, a free woman, in the matter for her freedom or to defend her freedom. And so Travis was her lawyer and successfully uh, argued for her freedom at the courthouse at the time that the Alcaldi court was transitioning to the, the primary court of David G. Burnett. So it's an interesting legal case and also affected uh, Celia's family uh, distinctly. And she has a lot of descendants here in town, including our town's current mayor. So she's a has a wonderful storyline that we interpret here at the San Felipe Historic Site. So, so wait a minute. The mayor of San Felipe, which is still an incorporated town in Texas, uh, is directly descended from a, a freed slave that William Barrett Travis represented in the court in San Felipe. That's right. And so, a wonderful family story that they're very proud of, and they they um, in fact, uh, Bob Phillips, Texas Country Reporter, was here a couple of months ago and recorded that story with the mayor at the bake oven um, telling the story of his, his ancestor. And um, so it's one of the stories that we, in our new project, we'll talk about a little bit. It's one of the stories that we'd like to highlight. No, that's just incredible. Um, I always say on the podcast, Texas is so connected to her history. Well, it doesn't get any more connected than that. Who were, who were, I would imagine every significant character in Texas history came through San Felipe. So you've mentioned William Barrett Travis, Stephen F. Austin obviously founded the town. You have David Burnett as the judge of that municipal court, who was then the provisional president of the Republic of Texas uh, during the revolution. Um, who else was hanging around San Felipe during the, the 1830s that we need to know about? Well, there's several, I'd say groups of people. Um, there were other impresarios in Mexican-owned Texas than Stephen F. Austin, but they would right. often come here. And so you have uh, Burnett had his own colony and, and different um, impresarios would, would come to interact with Austin. You also have, of course, lawyers from various parts of the colony coming here to practice law, merchants who would bring things. Um, um, Jim Bowie from San Antonio did a lot of land office business. And so he'd come here for that purpose. Several accounts of him staying at Peyton's Tavern in our town when he was here. Um, it's it's a real you know kind of a who's who. I think uh, our site manager Brian McCauley says that only Davy Crockett, we he would say, doesn't really have a connection to <laughs> San Felipe. But you pick somebody else, and they're bound to that we know of. That we know. That we know. Of. We may have come through. Well, maybe it's a test of my roles in the story. Maybe I can find right. one, make it up. <laughs> maybe nobody will gainsay me. Um, 
Gail Borden, the later founder of the Borden Milk Company, uh, was a newspaper printer here and, and, uh, and helped uh, at the land office when Austin was in, in Mexico in prison. Uh, just any number of people connected to early Texas, uh, visited here, worked here, came to get their land here. It's, it's just a real crossroads of, of people, some known and famous and many that were not, just, just average people trying to make a better life, trying to, to get a new start in Texas. And they had to do it, uh, if they were to do it legally through at San Felipe. Um, we discussed earlier that the site itself had sort of been neglected. Now, I'll just tell our listeners, much of the land that was part of the town you know, remains in private hands. We talked about one of the descendants, the mayor, uh, is descendant directly from, from a colonist. Um, but let's talk about what the state has done to sort of rejuvenate this site. So I understand that they've, the state has acquired additional land um, and, then built a, and built a visitor center. And I actually interviewed the listeners will recall uh, kind of early COVID times, I interviewed Brian McCauley, the site director, um, about the visitor center and everything that's gone on. But since then, we've acquired some more land, which is really the project that you're kind of leading here. So tell that's us about right. that. Well, this the site has developed, let's call it in three phases. In 2007, in the legislative session, uh, the site was transferred to the Texas Historical Commission which was the kind of the beginning of a, of a burst of activity and development here. In 2011, this, the Texas Historical Commission purchased uh, 77 or so acres that adjoined the, the previous historic site. So a small 12 acre site had been preserved as a, as a commemorative area since the 1920s, but um, they almost quadrupled the size of that property and that gave land not only to preserve more of the archaeological sites, but also some, some previously unoccupied land that would be good for modern development. So as you said, in, in uh, 2018, the new museum and visitor center opened. And that's a wonderful story of, of um, the, the three components of our town's early story. The settlement of Austin's colony, the community life in the village, and then San Felipe is the headquarters on the road to revolution. So the kind of the exhibit takes those three, those three components. And uh, in working on the exhibit, I, I, I compiled all the, the history and the content and found the objects and documents for the, for the exhibit story. And there was this whole community story that we couldn't tell. The artifacts didn't survive or we hadn't found them. Uh, there wasn't enough space. There's all these things. We couldn't tell the social stories. Uh, as much as we'd like to. And we did it in a, in a wonderful digital mural that you can touch and open up some stories, but it's, it's not very tangible. And I think what we wanted to add to the story was a tangible way to, to immerse yourself in what the town must have looked like and felt like. So adjoining the museum has been built what we call the Via de Austin, which is one of the names. We talked about the name of San Felipe de Austin. Um, even people today don't have a common pronunciation of it. It's in the, in the town, it's called San Philip, most common. Right. Uh, in Houston, you'll hear San Philippi, which is how they pronounce the street yeah. name in Houston. San Felipe with the Spanish. But back, and they had all those same pronunciations, I guess, back 200 years ago. But they also had 
uh, the Via de Austin, the village of Austin, and the shortened version of it, which was just simply Austin. And in fact, there was a lot of people who wanted assumed that the capital of Texas would be named for Austin, and here it was. And this later town named for Austin, that's now the capital of Texas, was a, uh, a result of the fire, they, th they would say, um, the destruction of the first town. But this was to be the capital of Austin, capital of Texas named for Austin. So it's called many things. So our project's called the Via de Austin as a, a snippet of life at the time. And in a research project that I did in 2015, I guess it was, um, I looked at every forgotten snippet of data about the town. It was called kind of archaeology, uh, archival archaeology. It was kind of the words that were applied to it. And I looked through probate records and deeds and every every little scrap of the history of the town to see if I could piece together it's the spatial nature of the town. Where was it? Who lived where? Whose businesses were where? What the buildings look like? And, and it was that research report I wrote for the state uh, came to be kind of the inspiration for a number of things in the exhibits. There's a the digital touch mural I mentioned earlier. There's a map plaza outside that shows kind of spatially where people lived. And that was a product from that report. And the Via de Austin is one as well. Um, I identified one block of the town that was particularly well documented in the archival record. Um, as, as an attorney, as a judge, you'll appreciate this, that, that uh, the probate records were quite, quite um, useful in this, that several of the owners of the property died in quick succession. So in 1830, one property owner died. Two years later, the one that was killed by the, at the pit saw frame. Uh, four years later, another one died. Celia, the uh, emancipated uh, former slave, she died in 1841, and her private inventory exists. So all these records gave a lot of material evidence of how the, the um, buildings, what size they were, where they were, what was in them. And so this one block had a particularly good documentation. And so the concept came to be uh, to build a sample of the town focused on this one block of the village. And so it has um, seven buildings, mostly log cabins, but one frame building. And it opens in, in uh, 10 days, I guess you'd say. Okay. 10 days, 12, coming soon. So, so uh, by the time you hear this, probably it's open. And um, it, it's designed to be an immersive space, all new made, all new furnishings. So it can be a hands-on learning center about life in early Texas. And so, you know, some museums preserve historic things, which is wonderful. That's what museums generally do. But often they're behind glass or you can't touch them. And, and so they're, they're a touchstone to the past, but one you can't touch. And this is designed to be a touchable touchstone. You can actually go pick up things and touch things and things work and they operate and you can, you can have activities and, and manipulate things and explore things. And we hope that that, because the original buildings didn't survive, this is a, another way of interpreting what was a vanished story, a vanished landscape. And it's a, it's a wonderful story happening on this, this one block of property. There's some big picture things about the town. There's the first printing office where the first book was printed in Texas. Uh, there's this hotel and tavern 
this little log cabin school of Thomas Pilgrim who had the first Sunday school in Texas. And next to it was the courthouse and council hall where um, David G. Burnett's court would have met. The uh, conventions were held and would have been the capital of the provisional government. So kind of a top tier storyline on one hand. And on the other hand is the um, a cellar underneath the tavern, the kitchen where Celia uh, interprets where Celia would have lived, the bake oven that she would have used, the pit saw frame where her owner was killed, um, a social history stories, an immigrant's cabin where a new family arriving in Texas might have lived to kind of give some social history of the town and the people that were settling. And so um, it's convenient to the museum. And I'll make the point that it's not on its original site. The original site has been preserved elsewhere. It's about a block away. And it's where we can still do archaeology and, and learn more about these buildings. So it's a little spatially confusing that the original site is not where this is built, but it's part of our mission, the mission of this Texas Historical Commission, to preserve the archaeological site and continue to learn from it so visitors can come here and they can see an excavation of the Brickline Cellar, and then they can go over here and see what we think the Brickline Cellar looked like and not have one destroy the other. So that's kind of the concept. And um, so the, uh, the the Via de Austin, the recreation of the block is a block away from where the real block was, is what you're saying, because you still want to do archaeology on the actual block. But we know enough that we can recreate this town in what amounts to, as I recall, the eastern sort of edge of the original San Felipe. That's right. The block is, is dead center downtown in the original town's organization. And we built it on the eastern edge near the museum on a part of town we don't think had the occupation. So we're not hopefully destroying anybody else's archaeology to do this. Right. And uh, so it's it's a but it's an interesting con connection where visitors can go and see the original site and, and periodically there'll be excavations of it. Um, and then this interpretation of what we think it looked like. And of course, and just so we're. I'm I hate to interrupt you, I'm sorry, but just so the listeners are clear, this is an actual recreation, full-size buildings, uh, the full-size courthouse, a full-size tavern, the bake oven, which I want you to describe how you came up with that. This is a this is an interesting idea. So there was a bake, uh, a huge oven. It's huge. I've seen it. Uh, but everyone could use it, right? You could you could go take your bread dough down there and and y'all are going to be baking. I don't know. I don't we want to do. promise any food for the visitors, but y'all are <laughs> y'all are putting it to use. We do. And so the bake oven is an interesting character in our town, in essence. Um, when the merchant partners moved here and they one was a baker and they built a, a large brick bake oven that, in fact, was large enough during the when the Mexican army arrived in the ruins of the town in, in the spring of 1836 they used the ruins of the bake oven as their breastwork for the cannon to fire across the river. So it was sizable enough to be a, a bit of a fortification. And it was the town's commercial bakery. So imagine uh, most people ate cornbread here because that's what you grew. And here at this one hotel, they had a, a commercial baking operation making breads and cakes um, in which were somewhat rare on the frontier. So it was kind of a big deal. And, so Celia was out there baking bread every day and, and uh, you could buy the bread or buy cakes when you were a hotel guest. And um, so we, we have not found it archaeologically. That's one of the things we've not found. 
but from the descriptions of it and some precedent examples in Pennsylvania, one of the, one of the ironies of our town, this is one among many, I guess, um, there was a fellow from Pennsylvania, Millwright, who um, from the area where some of the bake ovens we've copied, and basically one was from his own family. And he was a millwright here in San Felipe who helped build the bake oven. And in about six years later, five years later, he was the killed by a shot from that Mexican cannon that was behind the bake oven. So he was the only <laughs> casualty in our little battle killed by a shot from the cannon behind the bake oven that he helped build. So that he built, <laughs> that he built. So he may have wished he didn't build such a good bake oven. I don't know. That's right. <laughs> but um, so the bake oven is a fun thing about our, our uh, project. It does function. It does work. You, takes about six hours to heat it up. You put a bunch of wood in it and it heats all the masonry, all the brick. And then you take the fire out and then put whatever it, clean it out, mop it out, and then put your baked goods in there, breads or cakes or whatever you're cooking, and then close the door, put a wooden door up, and the radiating heat of the masonry is what cooks the bread. Not, not a fire, not a flame. And uh, so it's just a wonderful traditional way of, of baking that we can demonstrate um, for after hours things and volunteer parties makes a great pizza oven too, by the way. So yeah, I've, I've heard it's pizza, <laughs> not very historical, but for after hours things, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a fabulous pizza party. Um, and that's really, I guess what's, that's the philosophy or theme of the, the Via de Austin is it's a, it's a place to go immerse yourself, to go use, to go experience, to go explore. And because it's new made, you can touch it. You can, we can bake in the oven. If it was the original oven, we couldn't heat it up because that would be bad for preservation. Um, There's a lot of museums who preserve wonderful original things, but they're so fragile. They cannot be exhibited. They can't be interpreted. And, and, and that's, that's wonderful that those things are preserved. We're preserving traditions. We're preserving the, the log cabin building tradition, for example, by which we built these buildings. We're building, we're, preserving traditions of how they operated, how a printing press was used at the time. We have a working printing shop. It's a fabulous piece of this project. Um, A 200-year-old reproduction of a 200-year-old wooden printing press um, that, as I said earlier, printed the first book ever published in Texas. And so it's preserving these skills, preserving these stories, preserving the traditions, uh, even if we're not preserving original buildings and artifacts. And people or Texans and, and visitors from outside Texas are basically going to be able to step back into revolution era and pre-revolution colonial Austin's colony. You're going to be able to walk into the Aust- Austin's colony anytime. Yeah, and, every, and, that's right. And see what life was like. That's right. And it's a, um, and it's not heavily interpreted for you. Some, some outdoor museums you go to it, all the programming is people telling you the story and we'll have some of that. We're, we actively have volunteers who are helping us. Some want to be in historical clothing. Some want to be in modern clothes. We're trying to do an interpretive format to, to accommodate both. So there'll be volunteers uh, and, and some staff to help visitors encounter this. But primarily, we want the visitors to explore. And so we provide prompts for visitors to go to the printing office and get this or do this and uh, get a ballot at the printing office and take it over the courthouse and vote in the election. And, you know, to try and let them be the interpreter, let, let the visitor be 
the one animating the action, not a staff member or volunteer doing it for them. So it's an experiment. We'll see if that may so, be well, But what I love about it is you'll be part of the community. If you go visit, you're not going to be standing there watching. You're going to be part of Austin's colony for however long you want to stay there. That's right. And I, which I'll is amazing. People, if, if you see weeds in the garden, don't complain to somebody, get the hoe and go take go care of the weeds. <laughs> go out and tend the garden. That's right. I think I'm going to draw the line somewhere short of there, Michael, <laughs> but uh, being a judge, I think I'll hang out in the courthouse, but, um, so uh, the exhibit's going to open. We're recording this uh, first part of November. It's going to open November 13th. What can visitors expect that opening weekend? What should they look for? Well, opening weekend, you'll see everything we're doing times 10, I guess. There'll be a lot more volunteers, a lot more activities, um, special um, features that won't be here other days. So it's a fabulous day to come, come experience it but it might also be crowded and you might want to come back or come a different day and take a little more leisurely pace to, to explore the place on your own. Uh, the historic site is currently open Wednesday through Sunday from nine to five. So the, the VA will be open any day that the museum is open. And um, so some, some special events like this opening weekend, which is our father of Texas celebration in honor of Stephen F. Austin's birthday You'll see a lot of extra activities, um, surveying the land office, the printing office will be going, there'll be baking in the oven, there'll be woodworkers using traditional woodworking tools, the school, we're talking about the school and Sunday school operations, uh, courthouse, we'll talk about the courts and the, and the conventions that were held there, uh, immigrant family moving here and people sewing and spinning and textiles, um, our militia group with their cannon. Stephen F. Austin had a cannon in town. So we've built that as well. So you can hear the cannon go boom and, and uh, join the army. And just in, in so many ways, we're trying to, to bring these stories of people, uh, forgotten people in many cases, back to life and, and show people how, how did life happen back then? And the past was not that distant. People are not that different. And yes, you'll learn some history facts like you might in school about the Texas Revolution. But more importantly, we hope you'll, you'll get a sense of who people were and how they were and, and a sense of the times. It's not so much dates and facts. It's, it's how you think about the past, how you can learn about the past. And so in many ways, this, this is like being dropped into the past. And as a primary, a primary source, think of yourself as a researcher. And if you could time travel and go back into the past, what would you learn? And, you know, the books that were in the courthouse are reproduced and they're the books in the courthouse. Um, you know, so you can, the, the things they had, the documents they had, the maps they had are, are around this place. And, and so it's, it's an intriguing idea. You know, how would you learn about the past if you could, if you could immerse yourself in it. And I'm not, you know, it's a, it's a bit of an experiment. This is not your average museum interpretive format, but I hope it, it, it's something that becomes organic and grows and people uh, want to volunteer to help make things better um, to people, the courthouse more often or to help with the printing press more often and build a community of people connected to the past. And I, I, I really believe that, piece of it. The volunteers have been a fabulous component to this. Um, 
I brag on them all the time. Maybe I should brag so much, but absolutely brag on them. We have a couple of printers are coming once a week now, and they've put themselves on a course of study and work to become a seven-year apprenticeship to do in about seven weeks. You know, they've been speed, <laughs> speed reading and speed learning, and, and they've just done so well, and I'm very proud of them. And traditional woodworkers and people that like sewing the clothes of the time and people that want to bake at the oven or cook at the kitchen and, and um, all these traditional-minded skills. And we're trying to create a community where those interests are, are cultivated and taught and that people want to become connected to a specific component of the past. And the, um, the school, I, I didn't really say this earlier, but the school was taught on a system of older kids teaching younger children, uh, the Monitorial School or Lancasterian, it was called. And they had a motto in Latin, QE docet discit, he who teaches learns. And that's kind of the motto of this whole project. We want to find people who want to learn by teaching, older people who have skills that they'd like to have, they'd like to teach to younger apprentices, to volunteers, to visitors. And so we're trying to be a place, a mecca for traditionally minded people, skills, artisans, surveyors, blacksmiths, woodworkers, printers, um, educators, spinners, whatever it is, and encourage them to find a way to, to take their knowledge and share it with younger people and, and really get the younger people excited about the past. It's not happening much in schools. It's not happening sometimes in families. And we feel a real um, compelling need to, to create a, a tangible and, and visceral and immersive place so kids can see the past and not just read about it in a book or hear it in a lecture. And so that, that's really the, the, the end game for this project to see, can we excite younger generations about what the past was like? Well, I will say that longtime listeners of this podcast, if I always get these questions, how did, how did I get so interested in Texas history? And my connection was really running around land that had been in my family since the 1830s, because you feel so much more connected. And that's what's unique about this. And why I love San Felipe so much and I'm so excited about this Via de Austin is you are standing on the ground where it happened. So when you're experiencing the courthouse or the spinning or the bake oven or anything, you're standing where it happened and you cannot help but feel that connection. And I think that that the folks, the volunteers that are out there and everybody who comes and visits is going to feel that connection. You're standing on where it happened, and you can't help but but sense that. And I, I think that makes this such a fascinating opportunity for all of us to truly experience uh, and get connected to Texas history. Whether you've been here for seven generations or seven days, you can really feel it because you're looking at the same river that Stephen F. Austin looked at. Even almost 200 years ago, Branch Archer, who was the president of the consultation, in his introductory comments, called this sacred land they were standing on. You know, this is yeah. this is sacred property, and and it has been an important piece. And I think that it still is, and will be for many years. But until it's been preserved, until it's been interpreted, until visitors have been shown the story, it's easy to overlook it. 
And so it's an exciting time to be connected to this historic site. And we're all grateful to the Texas Historical Commission for making such a huge effort and a huge investment um, in our new museum and visitor center and now the Via de Austin. Well, and, and I just want to thank you for, I know you're, the, the listeners won't know this, but you're doing a punch list right now on Via de Austin. <laughs> and thank you for taking some time out to do this. Now, I want you to get back to work uh, because we're all going to be there on November 13th and we're looking for great things. Uh, Michael Moore, thank you for being with us on Wise About Texas. And uh, thank you for all you've done and continue to do to preserve Texas history. Thank you, Judge, very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mr. Moore. It's going to be a fascinating project to watch evolve. Um, We're now at the part of the episode I call Getting There, and obviously I'm going to tell you how to get to the San Felipe de Austin State Historic Site. First of all, if you want some information, Google Texas Historical Commission, and uh, within that you can uh, look up the historic site, San Felipe de Austin, The address to put in your GPS is 220 2nd Street, San Felipe, Texas. And that'll get you to the Visitor Center. And right next door, you will see uh, the Via de Austin. And I have a special announcement. I am going to be at Via de Austin on Grand Opening Day in the middle of the day, probably hanging out in the courthouse most of the time. So if you visit... Via Day Austin on Grand Opening Day, November 13th, 2021. Uh, look for me, come up, introduce yourself as a listener. It'd be great to meet you in person. And uh, we'll talk about some stories from old San Felipe. Well, that wraps it up. You can uh, find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Wise About Texas. Like and share the Wise About Texas Facebook page. And we'll see you on November 13th, 2021 at Via Day Austin. Go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.